Welcome to Thrive 2021, everybody. Today we have Jeff Bodkrod. He's a patent attorney based in the U.S., and it's a very fun episode. We talk about patent law, the history of patents, and how some people got screwed, how many inventors that created amazing things such as the tires that you use in your cars today got screwed over because of not having a patent on time. It's a very interesting thing. We talk about brewing beers, kombucha, we talk about patents in psychedelics and persistence and entrepreneurs and how some entrepreneurs make it and some not and the power of persistence in the creation of an idea whether that idea is a product that you're bringing to, into the world or yourself. You're gonna love this episode. Enjoy. It's the Christian Beer Show. All right, thanks Jeff for joining Thrive today. First episode of 2021. Sounds good. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man. I took a little bit of a break. I'm currently in Denver exploring the mountains, but but, but I'm very excited to hear you and talk a little bit about you. You know, as we were talking before, the 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 purpose of this podcast is that it's is to know you, right? Like and and to know people that are doing well in their lives and really enjoying them and in hopes that whomever's listening maybe can use some of these psychological tricks that we all use to make the best of our lives. And, and I think you're a prime example of these kind of people. I have met you uh, in these business conferences. I think I saw you once in Vegas, once in New York. Yep. And, and at I, least. At least, right. And I know that you're a fun guy to, to hang out. And, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of your story. Everybody, this is Jeff Bachrod. He's a patent lawyer currently based in New York. Yeah, so the thing is, is I got a lot of patent attorneys have a technical degree. It's, a, it's in addition to a law degree. So that's a pretty common pathway. And I didn't set out. Uh, to go to law school at all. I never thought as a kid at any point that I would be a lawyer. In fact, when I was actually doing it, it was sort of a, a little surreal. Okay, really, this is the right way to go. And, and what led me to it, though, was that um, as I was going through my chemical engineering degree, uh, toward the end, I started looking at what chemical engineers do. And I, I wasn't terribly excited about, about that. And um, I had a great opportunity because I took a class um, called the Law and Engineering taught by a patent attorney. And he started talking about patents. And I, was, I just was like, well, what's, it, what's this patent stuff, you know? And I remember right after class when we talked about patents, I went to the library to look at some patents, you know, just to see what they were. And like, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. So you describe an invention and you know the government gives you an exclusive right for it if you file for this patent. And I started just getting into it and learning about, you know, how people have used patents. And it's a very unique thing in a way to the United States because our history was very strong in patents for many years. And I think that helped put us ahead of a lot of other countries. So I was pretty excited about the concept of patents. 
And that's what got me in the idea. Well, if you want to do patents, you need to become a lawyer or you should become a lawyer. That's a, it's just a good, uh, you know, most, most people who work in that have the law degree because there's just that legal aspect of it. So, um, but I, I learned in working with uh, a grad students in the lab, because I was a chemical in a chemical lab, I learned that the ones who had a focus and they went to grad school with a picture in their mind of what they wanted and they were just doing it um, to really, um, you know, build toward a goal, were doing way better and they seemed more happy than the grad students who had just kind of like continued their education and just like with the next thing, you know. So I didn't want it to be like that. So I took some time off school. I, uh, I went and worked at the patent office as a patent examiner for a couple of years. And uh, during that time, I applied to law school. After about a year, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And ultimately, it's worked out really nicely because I think in, in my area, it gets me into the decision-making part of businesses, you know? So you're like, you know, do we go this direction or that direction with products? And it gets in, you end up finding yourself in these situations where people are actually relying on your advice to go like in a major direction with a corporation sometimes. And it's, it's pretty cool to be uh, in the point where you're able to analyze something that is so important for businesses that they would rely on that kind of advice. So um, a lot of that stuff, I think that would have been difficult to get to that point with just going through engineering is, but the combination of those two things worked out really nicely. So you know, that's kind of how I got here. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I don't, I see you and I don't immediately think of you as a chemical engineer. Mm -hmm. I, I do wonder uh, how, like you, you just didn't strike me as one. I, I, and I don't know many of, of, of them. I do have a friend. She, she's, she was, she's a chemical engineer and she used to brew a lot of kombucha in yeah. her house. <laughs> yeah. We, you have to brew something. I brewed beer for a little while. So that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing for chemical engineers. Half of them are home brewers. Do you still brew beer? No, I, the problem with brewing beer is you just have so much beer. You, you know, you're giving it away. You're just, you're just drowning in beer and it's, it's just not good for your health really. <laughs> so I got away from that, um, but it was fun to do it for a while. It's cool to know how to do it. You know? For sure. And let me ask you something. What patents have you been involved in that? Do you feel like, have you been involved in any pattern patent that people would be able to recognize or, or think of? Yeah, it's interesting because there have been um, times when I've worked for worked on medical device patents, and then I remember one time I had gave the company a, a go ahead to go and launch the product because we had information that said it was going to be okay in the marketplace, and it was like I had to give that out the next day, and it was something on CNN where Sanjay Gupta was doing a, a expose of the product. But you know, when you look at these things, they're specific; they're real products. They involve thousands of people developing them. Uh, they're in the real world, but in the grand scheme of things, unless you had that condition or something like that, or knew somebody who was impacted by it. So what I find is I, I'm mostly focused on pharmaceuticals and medical device type things. That tends to be where a lot of the chemical work is focused these days uh, with the healthcare. And um, I often find when I'm speaking with nurses, they know all about the products that I've worked on. You know, this kind of like, I worked on a, a wound treatment product one point, at one point that's 
you know, every nurse knows it and things like that. Or if I'm with nephrologists, they know a particular product that I worked on for a particular pharmaceutical company because they all knew about that product. But even in the fields, you know, it's like your average doctor may not know anything about, you know, products that are going out in nephrology if they're a surgeon in some other area or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I would know. In, I, I, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. So the only devices that I guess we would use are imaging devices, electroconvulsing machines that I, that have gotten better over the decades. The, the TMS uh, machines are also getting better. But I think that's about, there's a couple other kind of outlier um uh, brain stimulation devices that we can use or, or nerve stimulation devices yeah. that we can use, but we don't use those very often. I yeah. wonder, yeah, are so you familiar for with every those? one of those products, there's a patent attorney or a group of them out there who have worked with that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's how it is. It's kind of granular that way. For sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's cool. So you, you, you're in a very niche field and I wonder like, how's the competition in that field? Well, um, it's an interesting question that you raise. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of lawyers. Um, I'm pretty busy. I could say like right now I have a completely full book of business. Mm -hmm. um, so when I think about competition, it's, it's something I worried about before. Like, how am I going to make it? How am I going to get enough clients to make a full practice out of it? Um, you know, what I found though, is that over time I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of people and I get passionate about it. You know, I want to be right. I want to get them to the right result. I want to do as much as I can for them. And, you know, over a long period of time of doing that and then reaching out and constantly being in contact with people and traveling to Europe two or three times a year to meet with people, going to the conferences and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, ultimately I, I'm, I'm now at the point where it's, it's, I'm, having colleagues do a lot of the work that comes in and things like that. So that's, that's good. And so there is competition, of course, just like any field. And also the fees are not, you know, they're lucrative. So there's a lot of people who would love to be able to do that. And uh, so there's, there's people out there um, in, in that. But um, what I would say also is healthcare is so strong right now. There's just so much of an effort. And you know, I've written patent applications on COVID, you know, uh, to, you know, pharmaceutical products that are being repurposed to try on COVID and things like that. So, you know, that's just more work flowing in at a time when a lot of things are slowing down, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I, I have several friends and at least four or five friends that I can think of that are attorneys and they're more like starting their career kind of attorneys. Mm -hmm. They're associates in big firms or, or they started out as, as associates and they, they just want to quit. Like immediately. It's a tough period, man. <laughs> I can tell you, you know, there were a lot of times where it's just, you, you're constant, you have to work a lot um, because what happens is, is you, the more you work, the more you get exposed to, the better you are. So you don't want to be modestly busy, you know, and leave, leading an easy life early on in your career because you won't have had so many experiences. Um, and the thing is, is that it's it's a major uh, learning experience. It's a weeding out process, you know. A lot of people just give up because you know it's they just uh, you know look for some an easier life path or something like that. And 
you know, the, the law firm life is very much cut out that way. Um, you know, you have to have the ability to do the work, but if, if you can do that, um, but you don't have, you know, the skills to develop the clients, you're going to suffer in the long term a lot of times. You know, there's a role sometimes for people who have one skill, but that's, I think, few and far between. I uh, looked at it and said, I need to be able to connect with a lot of people. So how do I do that, right? And it really came down to storytelling, I think. And it's a, that's, that's been something that really I'd focus on in the last five years, um, three to five years. And uh, I got into it uh, experimentally, I would say, mm-hmm. by uh, you know, putting out a fact or two on LinkedIn that were unusual things that people would find interesting about patents, about you know, famous patents and things like that. And it kind of led through a lot of A-B testing, uh, you know, fairly informal A-B testing, but seeing, oh, this works. Oh, when I add a picture that goes along with the story, it just goes, you know, bananas compared to what it did before. And what happened was that eventually I got broader and broader reach and I was able to put out a story. And what's funny about it is, is you're not selling anything at that point. You're kind of selling yourself maybe a little bit of your personality. Um, but you're not doing a hard sell, like you want to buy my product or I can write a patent application for X amount of dollars, you know. But what I found is a lot of times people just wanted to be around uh, these stories and, and to learn more about it. And they were into it, too. And um, it was uh, a learning experience. I think a lot of that came from reading um, books and things about marketing and being around people um, through those business conferences we talk about, it's like, you know, you get around people who are doing it in another field and they say, well, you know, you're putting out stuff on LinkedIn, you know, and it turns out I'm talking to somebody who's, that's their whole job, you know, and they're just giving, you know, you might want to do this this way or that way and you do it and you're like, wow, okay, that's cool. Um, and uh, the other thing that's interesting to me about it is like psychologically, we're talking psychology, it's like, I felt terrified the first time I was doing this, you know, and it was an incremental, like little, it got more expressive and more expressive to the point where I'm putting out content that like, um, I would say that people were coming to New York and reaching out to me specifically to have lunch because they liked my stuff. And we ended up talking business eventually. And, you know, I meet with them on both sides of the pond and things like that, but a new connection like that coming in, from that, you know, things like that build over time. And it's, it's been fun. And I think really it came down to um, surrounding myself with the right kind of people who are doing similar kinds of things. And uh, you can just, you, you, you just, you get nuggets here and there, you know, and you can, you can tell them what you're up to. And, and it's like, Hey, you should think about this or that, and, you know, and I do that too with people. So it's like, people ask, they're working on a product should we get a patent i can tell them all about that you know and you know or you know a lot of times if somebody's doing some patent stuff you know and it looks like they're on the wrong path a lot of times i'm happy to say you know you might want to look at it this way or think about this um and uh you know it's it's a good you know it's a nice mutually beneficial thing you know you talk about storytelling and I've, I love storytelling. I think it's one underappreciated asset of every, every single personality out there. 
I think that just for my personal pleasure, I love telling stories about how I make a sandwich in the morning or, or I don't know, or how I look at the building and the cat stares at me. And, and what I realized is, you know, we're so focused about content and the meaning of, or, or let's say the quality and the value of the information provided in every single moment as if we are machines that require to be fed accurate facts all the time in order to be better. And we forget that happiness is such an important thing and enjoying the moment is it's such an important thing. And through this enjoyment and through, and through this pro internal production of emotion and the production mm -hmm. of emotion in, and, and, and as, as, a, as, a, as an effect of your internal production of emotions, other people around you are starting to have fun too. And through these happenings, creative processes begin, businesses begin, etc. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and 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 sometimes even talking about maybe the patient physician relationship. Sure. Uh, when I talk with my patients, a lot of the time, and and most of the patients that I see are are people that are experiencing cancer and are struggling with with making very difficult decisions about their treatment or being at, at a very uh, difficult stage in their treatment or maybe there there's no more treatments anymore mm -hmm. and what they have to decide is is to okay maybe I don't have much more time left in my life what do I do with it and some of what we do is really what is your story and what mm -hmm. is the meaning? What is the story of your life? And, and what yeah. is the legacy that you want to bring and give to others? And that becomes mm -hmm. a very cool and important thing for them. Some of them want to be uh, just some of them want to be uh, amazing parents and they have been parents and maybe they are a little bit frail now at this point and and they need to be taken care of by their children. But it, it's it, maybe the realization of letting them take care of them is the final teaching of being a good parent. And, mm. and, and this adds to the story of becoming the, the real parent, you know, and, and just realizing the story of yourself and being proud of the story of yourself and being able to, in the moment, enjoy it and tell it is such a beautiful and important thing. And, and as you say, just telling these little nuggets, it doesn't have to be the story of yourself. It can be the story of patterns. And, and I think you, told, you talked about it to me when we met last time, I forget, sometime last year. Mm -hmm. and, and you wrote this LinkedIn article on the mi meaningful patterns throughout history. Yeah. And of course, if I'm interested in patterns, like, that's like a gateway to find somebody like you. And, and to want to work somebody like you, like I could imagine a version of you that is extremely dry and mathematical <laughs> and, and maybe even very efficient. Me too, and, actually. I, I know that version of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and then that doesn't take away your skill. As you were saying, right, like as a lawyer, you, you were one skill is to be able to perform the task, but another very important one is to like find the clients and market yourself, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. And I don't know, like what better way to, what better way to market yourself beyond expressing how much you love what you do in a, in, in a, in fun a generic way. way. 
Yeah. So what happened is like, I started looking into these stories and I was like, holy crap. You know, there's a whole element of it that's not being told a lot of times, you know? And the reason is, is because patents tend to be so complex and just, you know, really getting in to read a patent application, you know, most people, you know, it's going to be painful for them to get through it, you know? And I hear this all the time from engineers and so forth. It's just to get it done right so that a court will uphold it and do the exact right thing. You really get into the weeds. You can't talk about that. And, and, and it's, it's hard to be excited about that part of it. Right. But that's the part you get paid for. That's the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the, the, the part that's easy to easier to get excited about is like, you know, what happened? Like with, what was the story there? You know, um, you know, who was Charles Goodyear? You know, when he came up with vulcanized rubber, how'd that happen? Was it a mistake? Did he, in fact, he, he it's, you know, the, the invention of vulcanized rubber is he had messed with it for many years. He was in jail when he was working on it, debtor's prison. <laughs> and he was playing around with it at one point, trying to mix sulfur with the rubber. Hmm. And a part of it flung onto the hot stove nearby and started bubbling up. And when he peeled the piece off, he looked at it like, this is what I was looking for. <laughs> and it's like crazy because it's like this eureka moment of, hey, I figured this out. And he was, um, unfortunately, didn't have the best advice. And at the time, the U.S. was nothing. It was like 18, maybe 40s or something like that. We're talking a while ago. Uh, Britain and the British Empire, having a British patent was the way to go. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and he, uh, unfortunately, was in the, in the attempt to expand his work, uh, sent his... Uh, a, a specimen of his product to a guy named Hancock in uh, in Britain. Okay. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Hancock saw this and realized the potential. And what he did was uh, Goodyear didn't tell him how he made it. He just gave him the product. Mm-hmm. And um, what Hancock did was he actually reversed engineered it. He figured out, okay, this is rubber sulfur. He just figured it out. I think when you know that there is an endpoint it's easier to find it, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you, then when you're serendipitously discover something for the first time, you don't know if it's there or not. You're kind of trying different things, but if you know, this is it, they somehow made this, you can focus it. And he did. And Hancock filed a British patent application on the process that he did mm-hmm. for vulcanized rubber. And unfortunately, you know, in the U S we had a different system. It's changed since then, but we were a first to invent. So a court would look to see who really was the first inventor. And this is the U.S. system for, from you know, the very big 1789 to uh, the first patent law to uh, 2013. It was like this. We recently harmonized with the rest of the world, but Britain and the rest of the world has always been a first to file country. Meaning, like if you hadn't filed in Britain, you know. Anybody in Britain files before you, you're done. And Han- Hancock filed two weeks before Goodyear got his stuff together and filed in Britain. And he just didn't, uh, Goodyear didn't use all the processes that were available to him. And it just, he missed it by two weeks. And there was a trial, okay, with Hancock and Goodyear. And Goodyear, uh, I would say he flew, <laughs> he took a ship to go to Britain 
to uh, watch this trial, you know, with the judges presiding. And on the eve of the trial, Hancock offered to him to settle the case and split everything 50-50, U.S. and, but his ego, you know, Mr. Goodyear that said, you know, I'm the inventor, no way, went to trial and he lost the case. Oh my God. So Goodyear only had U.S. patent rights, all the patent rights outside the U.S. where all the, you know, a lot of the commercial activity was back then didn't belong to him. And it was, you know, unfortunate. I think if you look at it these days and you know how cases go, you would have taken that settlement. You want to reduce that risk. You know, you don't want an all or nothing thing, but actually with inventors, they're passionate people and they feel like they're entitled. They invented something. And no, I did. I invented it. Not that other person. They, they almost don't care about the money. That's the only way to explain it. It's more about, they want to be recognized. And in some ways, I think Goodyear was recognized with history as being inventor of vulcanized rubber. And Hancock's thing was more of a patent move that hmm. was successful. Um, but you find actually, and, and that, that's what I do. I get into the business intelligence. Look, I'm advising somebody who, you know, wants to do something in the world. And, you know, there's patents uh, or, you know, they want to have patents. So I'm, I'm helping them navigate the the practical business side of it. Like, how are you going to make a company? And so I work with lawyers who help form companies. I work for, with lawyers who do other aspects of IP and things like that. And we help uh, companies uh, get started a lot of times. Um, I have a little bit of startup business. Most of my clients are kind of big multinational companies, um, but I like to have a mix because I think the startup stuff is fun to do. And um, the people are really interesting in a lot of ways. So I like working with them as well, even though they probably don't pay as well <laughs> a lot of times. But, you know, when they do hit well, they, um, they know who helped them get there. And I think that's been a huge part of my um, ability to develop the business, which is that one of the clients that I, I worked for in, uh, for many years, I wrote a patent application in 2011. And they formed a company around it and sold the company for $2.8 billion, $2.7 wow. billion in 2015. So now they're off doing another company and, you know, it, it's just this cycle they're innovating. They want to, they, they're excited about making new products. Of course, they want to try to make that big payday again. That's a very rare thing. I was very fortunate to have been at the center of that. In fact, a lot of people ask me when you write a patent application, do you know it's going to be a big deal? That one I thought was a kind of pie in the sky concept because it was so different than other drugs. Mm. How are you going to get it approved and all this stuff? And I, a lot of my thoughts was, okay, it's cool. I'm going to write the patent application. We'll see how it goes. But it's something I learned working with these founders and, and a founder of this company in particular. The level of persistence is, is insane to the normal person. They, they interpret it as insanity, really. <laughs> And, uh, you know, at the time I hadn't been exposed to this. So I, I was taking it from a normal layperson perspective, like, okay, maybe they can patent it. Well, they'll, they'll be able to patent it, but will this product be successful? It's really hard to predict. And uh, I, I watched the amount of persistence that went in with them and to get it over the finish line. It was just quite, quite a story, you know, because they started out two people and, you know, by the time they sold it, the company's over 200 people wow. and, it's, just, it's a major thing. And, you know, it's, it's a product that 
you know, everybody who's a nephrologist knows what it is. You know, that's so interesting. Like, I I guess that I don't think about patents that much, but there's, they they play such an important role in our everyday's life. Just thinking about one of the areas I'm most passionate about, which is psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is currently being researched and potentially will become FDA approved in the next year or, or five years. And and this what was done. This, this all this research is done with drugs that are generics now because they were discovered in the fifties, right. and and so there's this new thing that companies have found a way to kind of patent the drugs by mm-hmm. something called data exclusivity. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with it. I'm. That's. I work in that area. I teach a class at Yeshiva University focused on how to navigate the data exclusivity and the marketing exclusivity and patents. So it's the combination of the two to optimize things. But in your case, where you're talking about psychedelic drugs that have been researched to the nines over several decades. And as I understand it, you know, the research was strong for a while, then it went on hold for a while and now it's mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. super hot right now. The FDA will give for a new approved drug drug that hadn't been previously approved exclusivity, and that does not depend on patents. And in many cases, they won't be able to patent uh, anything around the product. I'm sure they're looking for ways to improve it Mm -hmm. so that they can uh, tie the improvement to their product and the data exclusivity. Uh, In that situation, let's say they let's say they had a version of the drug on years ago that people worked with, but they, you know, maybe it wasn't well absorbed or wasn't well tolerated or something, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe there, maybe there's aspects of the drug that ha- like we didn't understand before. For instance, if there was, uh, you know, if you didn't know that there was a very active metabolite, you know, or something like that, that could be transformed into a new active drug product. We see things like that ways to put the pharmaceutical together so that it's more bioavailable in the body and things like that. I'm sure people are looking down those paths because if they can combine their data exclusivity with patent exclusivity, then they really have a nice uh, glide way for seven years, usually of, you know, competition free, you know, sales, which, you know, which would reimburse them for whatever R&D they're doing to get it approved. it often costs uh, upwards of a billion dollars to get the thing through the FDA. Um, And um, especially for novel products and things that need to be fully tested for safety and that efficacy. So when that goes through, you know, in order to get a product to the market, somebody has to pay that money with the risk that that phase three clinical trial will show no efficacy, nothing right. better than the current standard of, and you know, safety is one thing, you know, safety is good. If it knocks out on safety, you know, early at least, mm-hmm. you haven't exposed a lot of people to it. And you also just, it's an early preliminary usually, hopefully, you know, hopefully, hopefully you don't find safety problems later, but that sometimes happens. But what more frequently happens is a drug that everybody thinks is safe, gone through the phase two clinical trials, you know, you have an idea of how you're going to dose it, you're ready to expand it out to the full population. And you get the data and it's just not statistically significant improvement. And it's like, you know, there's nothing that can come of that. Um, 
but oftentimes what you find is that there's an improvement for some parts of the population. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's maybe not a grand slam, but there's certain pipe patient population that, that would do better with this version versus that version. In that case, you can get it through the FDA if it's a, if there's a therapeutic benefit like that. So, but along the process, I'm always working with companies. Okay. What are we doing with the process? You know, is the product changing in any way, you know, and it's like, it, we we're looking at uh, hooks in ways that we can translate it into a new product that would be patentable relative to what's been done before. And in some ways, the patent laws, unfortunately, uh, by necessity, I can't imagine a better system really in a way, but you have to have some standards on what are patentable and what's not. And, you know, that one is novelty. It needs to be new. And, you know, there's sometimes when, you know, maybe something's never been, you know, really tried before and nobody realized how great it was until they did try it. But 50 years ago, somebody described it in a paper hmm. and they didn't do anything with it, unfortunately. So you see these situations where in that case, the patent law would say no, no composition patent for you, no, no, mm -hmm. no major patent. So you're kind of held back by these things. And, and that's where it gets into like a lot of the details of it. But, you know, of course, people are going to be looking at it up and down to see what they can do um, and to maximize things. And if they don't, there'll be data exclusivity. You know, I have several questions for you now. Um, one of them you <laughs> met before you... <laughs> Is that again? I said, we're going to get in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> like at, at the beginning, you started, before you started talking about this FDA process, which is so prohibitive financially for the average uh, person, right? It's almost impossible unless you're a massive corporation. Um, you, you were talking about this company that produced this device and the persistence of the founders and how that was so almost like relentless. And that was almost a driving factor in becoming on, on this product, becoming useful. Mm -hmm. I, that made me think a lot about the, the creation of your own reality. In, yes. in, isn't that so true? Like every single one of us, we are born in a, in a family somewhere in planet earth. And then we, we have some, maybe like a genetic, deal right like we, we we look in a specific way we are of a specific race we have a a certain maybe financial facility depending on where we're born and then at some point i would say around age 20 ish maybe before for somebody maybe a little bit after for somebody else you you have some degree of free will now, and, and, the, and I'm going to say just some degree because we are so heavily influenced by uh, the way that our family raised us, the way that our school uh, in, uh, in made us internalize so, a certain set of beliefs and, and also like whatever surrounding culture we have. And, mm -hmm. and then from then on, you go and you make your life and you can choose to either just be a, an, a sort of effect of all these variables that have been placed around you, or you can be kind of insane, as you say it, and create a reality for yourself that is completely unrelated to every, every other variable put to you. And I, I don't know, I just felt like it's such an important thing, this insanity that, that, that you 
bring up is it insanity or is it just you they're the ones who are saying <laughs> who's doing the right thing you know um it's it's it can be it can be rewarded extremely you know and the thing that dissuades a lot of people is you could put in that effort and it comes to nothing so you have to accept that risk but that's just part of life right you know you got to do the work otherwise you definitely won't get anywhere right but if you do the work it doesn't guarantee success and i i've known people who've been just through startup after startup where they're just modestly successful you know and they never have the big hit and believe me they look around the room and they see somebody's got the big hit is a little envy there you know it's just that little bit of you know but you know a lot of them more or less have the attitude of hey like you know it's one one of these you know i just got to keep trying you know keep trying moving forward trying different things you know the best inventors are tinkerers you know they just tinker with stuff you know they you know, not, they're never satisfied you know that this is that this is the best and i think you know if you took certain inventors that were prolific for instance and you took them into a completely different part of the world and you focus them on a different pro problem they'd have a whole bunch of patents in that area too you know it's not like this serendipitous thing where you know the clouds parted and invention was lowered from you know we talk about the invention story like uh you know there's just this this spark of innovation that came down and came over somebody you know they hit their head on the toilet and they came up with the flux capacitor you know <laughs> things like that where it's like you know we, we like to imagine that i think that's an it's a little bit of a kind of a loser way of thinking of the world you know that that the inventors themselves um came to it in a certain way that was maybe less deserved you know in some way because it was just upon them and they just you know maybe if i had that kind of luck it would apply to me too but what you really find with an inventor is that they oftentimes exhaust everything like they they look for ways to do it differently and they do the work to get it done differently just to see and they want to know and i think the 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 quote that comes out of that comes from uh, edison's invention of a light bulb that was quite improved over uh, other light bulbs. He had the light bulb that burnt for like 12,000 hours, I think it was. And at the time they didn't have good metals for filaments. So he went out searching and he, he basically sent people all over the world to look for uh, filament material from different plants that could be carbonized and used in light bulbs. And they ultimately settled on this material that was out of Japan. Uh, after looking at, um, you know, so many different variations. And what's funny is they never were able to patent it because they filed their patent on the basic light bulb design. And that was kind of anticipated by an earlier one that was eventually bought by Westinghouse to compete with them. But the actual filament stuff, so they, 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 they went, scoured the earth and tried everything and they came up with the best one. And a reporter asked Edison at one point, you know, are, aren't you disappointed that you, you know, there were, you, you failed so many times to make the light bulb? And he just said, no, I just figured 10,000 ways that a light bulb doesn't work, you know, and that's his attitude. And I think that embodies what, you know, what a lot of these prolific inventors have. And, you know, that case is an interesting one because it went to the Supreme Court because Westinghouse tried to sue them on this other patent that they acquired kind of like, to, to get at them. And the Supreme Court said, no way. 
Edison went around the world, took him, you know, 10,000 tries to make, to find this bamboo bulb, uh, the, the filament. And, um, you know, your patent doesn't say anything about it. We all know that those light bulbs didn't work without a good filament. And the Supreme Court said that patent's invalid. And they let Edison, uh, you know, continue to produce the light bulb. And they formed General Electric. And then ultimately about 10 years later, they figured out a way, one of the engineers figured out a way to stretch tungsten into a wire, which was a difficult thing to do. I think the guy's name was Langmore, but he uh, got a patent on that. And that's currently a tungsten filament is still used in light bulbs, the incandescent bulbs today. So that's kind of an interesting story of how that, how that went, you know, and, and I think it speaks to this, the fact that it's, you know, the 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. And it also speaks to the fact of, in general, people think of patents as a way to protect your invention or as a way even if you're like an average individual of like, think of an idea, patent it, and then if somebody else wants to produce something, then I, I'm going to make some money. And then yeah. the case that you're talking about speaks of the opposite of the, this company really trying to do better to, towards the production of a, a product and creating more value to the world. And then this sneaky company trying to like patent it to get, get some money and the Supreme Court saying, no, this guy actually yeah. deserves it, which is interesting. Uh, okay, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but how do you see a world without patents? Mm. Okay, well, I, I, it's, there, are world, there are countries that don't have much of a patent system. So that might be one, where, one place to look. Um, if there's no way to reward somebody uh, for the, basically their ability to create something new, the problem is, is that everything good will be copied, you mm -hmm. know, and the moment that happens, you lose your profit margin and you can't compete. And so a lot of things just, I think, wouldn't get done. Now, it's not true. A lot of people say, well, that's taken too far. And there's so many things that would get done just because people want to do it. And the patent system sometimes gets in the way of that because you have other people swooping in and try to sue them. So there's, so there's that aspect of the patent system. There's a little bit, can be a double-edged sword, but I think overall, the part that people miss, the part that people don't understand is that it's not about um, being able to sue people in the marketplace and all this stuff. Patents are building blocks of companies that can be dealt and traded. And they're like cards you're holding, you know, in the marketplace. And so you can you can develop your product here, okay? And the thing is, is you patent this part of it, right? And you can go to an investor and say, look, we are going to put this on the marketplace and we're gonna succeed. And therefore we'll be able to pay you back or you may wanna own a part of our company. And that's what most of the VCs are doing is they're taking equity in companies in exchange for cash injections and expertise usually. So, that part of the patent, that, that part of the system, I, I don't know how you would do a lot of the venture capital stuff in certain areas of technology that could be easily replicated, you know, uh, if you didn't have patents in place. And in fact, 
either in, in areas where that's a problem and that's medical devices and pharmaceuticals, definitely a problem because you will have competition. You'll have people copying anything that's sold in a hospital or anything like that. So you, what you would, you would lack new products. You would lack new designs. You would lack a, an incentive to launch new things. You know, there will still be new things at times. Sometimes the demand is so strong. People don't care. They just want to go into this area and they will. Okay. So I'm not saying that that, there would never be any innovation, but I've seen so many things get shelved, so many things. And I'm often the one given the decision to say, this isn't, you can't, you know, because of the patent situation, it's so important that there be some way to have a, a profit margin after the product is launched from the activity in order to attract investment. And that's where people don't understand enough about the patent system, how important it is. They focus on lawsuits, which is a part of it. And you know, ultimately all these playing cards are backed by the possibility of a lawsuit. And, but in the end, what you see a lot of times is that's how deals get done. It's about the IP. So we build this portfolio here, you know, and maybe we're working over here. We wanna do this maybe um, so, to treat a certain disease, right? But it turns out the compound could be used for another disease, but we don't focus on that. So I can license my patent to company B for in exchange for royalty fees to develop and market a, a different product. And that happens all the time. That's a, that's a very uh, typical way of structuring deals is to have a, um, you know, have exclusive licenses in different fields from the same patent. You know, so you can work in this field and, you know, and I guess in a lay way to describe it would be like if you had a, a vehicle patent and one wanted to work on motorcycles and the other wanted to work on cars and it, the patent applied to both, you could exclusively license the, the, the patented invention for use in motorcycles to one company and exclusively oh, license the car thing to another company. And in, in those ways, an inventor can do really well, or a company can do really well with a patent portfolio where they're obtaining licensing revenue um, off of things. So it's a, it's a unit of, it's, it's, it's the ability to um, have a way of, of reaching agreements in the commercial domain about you know, technology transfer, essentially. You know, Again, this brings me to think about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and, and what, something that you said, right? You need this protection in order to create a profit margin in order for your investment to be meaningful to your revenue in the future. And one of the reasons psychedelic assisted psychotherapy wasn't even, even tried for decades was yeah. because they were generics. So whatever they would produce or whatever they would find through the, we already, you already mentioned that it requires a couple billion dollars to go through the FDA to find it approved, not even, to, not even considering the fact that these are schedule one substances completely prohibited by the FBI, right. so uh, by the DA, so it's like a whole thing. And so they had to do this whole research through philanthropy which is uh -huh. kind of unheard of. Eventually, yeah. eventually they, they, were, they, they were able to find other <clears throat> mechanisms, mechanisms to go through it. But even now, you know, something that I sometimes think about is that the moment this becomes FDA approved, 
let's say psilocybin is one of the components that is being researched for uh, substance use disorders, for depression, for treatment-resistant depression, etc. And the, the, the findings so far are extremely promising. And mm -hmm. yet, what I wonder or suspect will happen is that the moment these substances become FDA approved, at some point, the, the DEA must change uh, the scheduling system, right? Like, oh, uh, if yeah. and the moment this the schedule changes, and the moment these are FDA approved, they're like you can't really. Well, I guess you can uh, right now through the scheduling system. These substances that grow in in the earth are illegal, right? Like you can go to right. to, to Seattle or something and just like pick a mushroom, and go to jail for it. But mm -hmm. if if in the future these substances become uh, legalized, there will be, it'll be very difficult for pharma companies to compete against a mushroom that is growing in the floor. So yeah. it, it, it's an interesting case scenario. And I wonder how it'll play out in the future. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a unusual aspect of it because of the black market that's been created, essentially. Um, uh, you know, I think in, in, in areas where there hasn't been absolute prohibition, you know, um, with other drugs, it just isn't that thing because people don't want it enough. And then they get, if they do, they'll just get it approved and they'll, they'll, they'll want to take a safer drug. You know, I mean, um, you know, you have to have some specialized knowledge, I imagine, to, you know, go out and eat mushrooms that you find in the wild, you know, it's just somewhere along the way. And at any point that you're getting a product like that, you have no idea necessarily the quality controls that went into it a lot of times, if it's a black market product, because how would you control quality? I mean, you can't have a company doing it that's monitored and has controls and things. So it's an unfortunate situation um, in a way um, because the prices aren't really that low. Um, you, you know, you're paying a hefty margin to people who are kind of unscrupulous to get you, you know, or you know just outside of the legal um, side and and i think with pharmaceuticals dosing is really important probably with with psychedelics it's extremely important i would imagine you know that in terms of getting that right for the right amount i hear of this micro dosing thing it seems like a phenomenon so it sounds like if you're trying to do micro dosing and you don't want to go on a three-day lsd trip on accident you know <laughs> or whatever it is um you know uh, a pharmaceutical will be good but these additional layer of DEA, I'm sure, adds a whole nother thing to it. And then there's a political element to where some companies, you know, maybe are conservative or something like that. They just don't want to get involved. Um, I've heard things about um, investors and, you know, uh, larger companies making a decision. We don't want to do anything with cannabis hmm. just because we're known to be, you know, this kind of soda pop or something like that. We don't want to go in there. And there, though, I'm sure with mushrooms and things like that, there'd be a different, there'd be a similar kind of reaction, although that's getting less and less important since the uh, cultural culture wars are kind of yeah. shifting in a different direction, probably, <laughs> but no. they're not on, they're not on drugs as much as they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was being a little bit of a devil's advocate too, you know, like in, in reality, I mean, yeah, I guess that anybody could grab a mushroom and eat it, right? And 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 and, make, and, and trip on it. But if you want to use psychedelics to get your depression improved, I mean, 
you, you got to take into consideration what it, what it is that they do, how do they do it, mm. and and how to get there, right? Like, and and there's such a decades of research showing set and setting being so important. Set being like being in a very specific safe place. Uh, wow, yeah. having a very specific mindset and having the right person that you trust guide you through the experience in a specific way so that you can have a specific outcome if you don't that's really have- different yeah it's very different than anything you know if you were to incorporate that into the the process you know that where it had to be somehow uh, at least a process that you know you go to a certain kind of place and they do these certain kinds of things that's very different, you know, and I, I think that's hard to, it's hard to uh, monetize that in a way to tell investors, hey, this is how much money we're going to make off it, because who knows whether it's going to catch on, you know, right, uh, you know, right. how many, how many doctors are we going to find who want to specialize in this, you know, how many patients are going to want to use it, you know, things like that. And it's so interesting, you know, in the field of psychiatry, we have several uh, interventions that can help you with substance use disorder or depression, etc. But but the reality of it is that even though they don't help as much as an antibiotic would help an infection, you know, it's not that I can give yeah, you a drug and then you'll be like, Broof, I'm cured. And yet the current psychedelic research findings are so promising. They're still not like that, but they're, they're they're magnitude stronger than our current therapies. And, right. and at the same time, there's so, so much taboo about it. Um, yeah. But also we're living in a mental health crisis where mm-hmm. I, I'm sure, you know, if you're having a very severe depression and you're having such a hard time get, even getting out of bed or being productive in, in the way that maybe you were in the past, and mm-hmm. then you find out that there's a possibility that you that you can get better after a couple of sessions instead of just taking an antidepressant for like months or well, I've also heard that it's a oftentimes it's a one experience or two and they don't do it anymore they don't need it anymore yeah and yeah. it gets them snapped out of their thing this is not good for the product side of things right cuz right. think about what all the you know, a lot of the most successful pharmaceuticals treat chronic, chronic conditions where you're getting the drug every day for the rest of your life, you know? And so that's, that's another um, a challenge, you know, that will be there. Yeah. And, and yet there's a place for everything, you know, yeah. um, vaccines, like they're supposed to be used like only once if they work yeah, very well. Right. And, yeah. and there's gonna, they're, they're gonna be used for every single new human being that comes to planet earth. And, yeah. and, and if you're like me, that needs to come for, I, I'm, I just finished the, the process in order to become a, well, I'm about to finish the process in order to become a permanent resident here in the US. And part of it is to have a vaccination profile. And I've, yeah. I've, back, I've been vaccinated for everything when I was a little kid, but we, we used titers. Uh, to yeah. see how if I had antibodies for some things and I didn't have I think antibodies for hepatitis A so they have to revaccinate me for it so oh, some people will get vaccinated twice in their life for something maybe the flu yeah. you get vaccinated a year who knows what's going to happen with COVID etc but yeah. it, I, I feel like there's a market for everything and there and also there's the the production, the productivity, the, the population productivity value of having something to work even with one dose. And 
I don't know. I mean, it's very, it's too early to tell. I mean, it's like uh, the kind of thing you might, you might see some major transformative change. Like what percentage of homeless people might decide to, to not be homeless and not be a burden on society, you know? I mean, imagine that, right? If you just took some, some kind of thing like that. And I think that's, that's an area too, where it's like, you know, hopefully um, if we do find net benefits like that, you know, we can find ways to fund it. You know, sort of like vaccines are largely, uh, they get a lot of government funding um, mm -hmm. because there isn't a lot of money in vaccines, despite what people say in the news these days. Uh, like I said, you know, you administer it and it's gone. And a lot of times the thing you're vaccinating against disappears and people lose interest in it. So mm -hmm. while mental health is not disappearing anytime soon, it seems to be getting worse. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it would be great to be able to find out ways to... And you know the microdosing may be more of a thing that 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 could be uh, a, um, a profitable thing at least if for people who want to do that on a regular basis and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different dimensions to it. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, I I think there's uh, I have some colleagues that are already working on uh, the, uh, on trying to find a financial benefit because you know like having an eight hour long session two or three times over a period of a couple of months is expensive, especially yeah. if you have to do this therapy with two people, right? Like you have to have a, a diet, therapeutic diet, which is what, what, what we mentioned in the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy world. So it's kind of expensive, but if you're able to make depression disappear, the benefit, the financial benefits of a productive individual, as you were saying, like what if a, a, like a depressed homeless person is able to suddenly become a productive member of society it would be so meaningful that it, it even profitable for a nation to pay for that treatment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And you might even find people, like you said, there's been a lot of philanthropy in the area where people say, you know, I can make an impact here by doing this. And that, that could be the case. And I think it's interesting that it's kind of reviving now because I think that has to do with just society's attitude toward drugs is changing. And um, that, that, the previous, you know, good versus evil way of looking at drugs isn't really that productive. There's often, it's often very arbitrary. You know, we have all kinds of pharmaceuticals that are approved that would wreak havoc, you know, yeah. on people and do, you know, and, and there's a lot of things that have been labeled as illicit drugs that the hippies use, you know, <laughs> that are ultimately creating some benefit for some people. So, yeah, and I think we're there now. It's, we're, we're really there as a population, you know. In the grand scheme of things, every single intervention is a risk-benefit analysis. Nothing, everything that you put in your body has some, uh, can, can have some significant benefits and some significant yeah. risks. And as long as there is a meaningful, thoughtful risk-benefit analysis, there's no, I, I don't think there's substances that are like, extremely bad or extremely good they're just like appropriate or inappropriate for specific situations depending mm -hmm. on the risk benefit tolerance of the individual patient the right. problem is when when these things are not really taken into consideration and then they're just like yeah just just take this drug or do this thing and then suddenly like you you, you create this tolerance etc 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 right anyway jeff it's been a pleasure as always talking to you same too. Same here, Christian. <laughs>